0: Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE is a catalyst for change in the engineering industry, and one of the biggest ways we inspire that change is through our annual SWE Conference for Women Engineers and Technologists. This year's conference, WE21 in Indianapolis, Indiana, will help attendees at all ages and stages learn, connect, and grow. Join us for three days of networking and relationship building, over 250 professional development sessions, three inspirational keynotes, and a career fair featuring more than 300 exhibitors. Let's aspire to inspire at WE21 October 21st through the 23rd. Head to we21.swe.org for more info and to register.
1: Welcome to SWE Stories, Tales from the Archives. I'm Anne Perusik, SWE's Director of Editorial and Publications. And I'm Troy Eller-English, SWE's Archivist. It is October, which means we are immersed in preparations for the SWE Annual Conference and have wrapped up the conference issue of SWE Magazine. The role of male allies in creating inclusive workplaces and a more equitable profession is being addressed at both the conference and in the conference issue of the magazine. And it is the topic we are talking about today. This term, male allies, has come into usage in the past few years. But the concept and importance of men as partners to establish gender equity in engineering has been around since the early days of SWE, more than 70 years ago. We'll talk about those years, the 1950s and 60s and beyond, in just a moment. The conference issue of the magazine includes the feature article, Male Allies Must Focus on the Details to Help Women Succeed. From all the experts interviewed in the article, the point was made over and over that male executives and allies must take clear and forceful actions. It is not enough to simply say the right things. Our interviewees included doctors Brad Johnson and David Smith, among others. You might recognize their names as the professors and co-authors of the books, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace, and of Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. At WE21, Dr. Johnson is presenting one of the inspiring insights on Friday morning. You'll definitely want to hear his remarks, whether in person or virtually. But back to the magazine, we interviewed a number of other men, as well as women, including members of SWE's own He for SWE affinity group. And the digital version of the magazine, by the way, can be found at org. I also wrote a
2: short scrapbook article for the conference issue about SWE's early male allies, although, as you say, they certainly were not called that at the time. And when I was doing research in the archives for that article, I was really struck by a quote I found in the December 1968 SWE newsletter in an article about the presentation of the first Rodney D. Chip Memorial Award. At the awards banquet in 1968, SWE founding member Evelyn Jetter recalled the early members of the society, explaining, quote, we took ourselves very seriously and kept looking around to see if anyone else also took us seriously. Rod Chip did, end quote.
1: Yes, and I very much like the title of the scrapbook article which is a takeoff from the quote you found in your research. Between the title of the scrapbook, the men who took us seriously, and the images of those men, we get a clear sense of the times and of their support. Rodney Chip was the husband of Beatrice Hicks, SWE's first president. A respected engineer in his own right, he was by all accounts highly supportive of Hicks engineering career. He saw her as a professional equal at a time when very few men in technical fields believed that women engineers could, in fact, be their equals. And Chip knew that his wife was not alone. He knew that although women engineers were exceedingly rare, comprising less than one tenth of one percent of all engineers when the society was founded in 1950, those few who did pursue and persist in engineering were just as capable, just as professional as their male counterparts, and oftentimes by necessity, even more so. The Chip Memorial Award was established after his death to recognize men who, as described in the December 1968 SWEES newsletter, worked, quote, not only for the enhancement of women in engineering, but for enlargement and enlightenment of the engineering profession, from which all members, both men and women, must benefit, end quote.
2: The oral history interviews, speeches, and newspaper clippings in SWE's archives are full of unsavory anecdotes about male colleagues, bosses, and sometimes even male relatives who underestimated or belittled the skills and professionalism of women engineers over the past years. But you can also find stories in the archives about the men who made space for women in engineering, who provided women with opportunities, who listened to women engineers when others would not. So today, we'd like to share a few of those stories about
1: and by SWE's male allies. You brought up a quote a few minutes ago from Evelyn Jetter, a founding member of SWE, She worked for the Atomic Energy Commission in the 1940s, but was expected to and did leave the workplace when she had her children in the 1950s. However, she did not completely leave the workforce and instead she worked extensively from home as a consulting physicist for Beatrice Hicks Engineering Controls Company before returning to industry in the 1960s. In a 2013 Sweet Grassroots Oral History Project interview, Evelyn's daughter, Alexis Jedder, recalled her father, Alan, a self-employed engineer, taking on more cooking and childcare duties than usual to make space for Evelyn's career. The following excerpt has been edited for length.
3: My father would make dinner. And it was always, you know, my father had this sort of survivalist, he fancied himself a time and motion study guy. But all it meant was that there was numbing repetition to what we ate, you know. So he had these green metal shelves in the basement and we had tuna fish, spaghetti with ketchup and pickles, I think. And then as we sort of went up the socioeconomic ladder, we'd have hamburgers, macaroni, and potato salad and pickles and spaghetti with ketchup. I still, I don't eat it, but I have to admit, you know. It is familiar food. And then we knew we'd arrived, and my dad made sliced London broil on the griddle and potato salad and macaroni salad <laughs> and pickles. But he made dinner for us at night when my mom ran off to, to school. So I was raised in a, in a pretty unconventional household,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and and that was great. She was desperate to get back into the work world. She really had wanted three kids, and she was ready to go back after that. My father wanted a fourth. And I think they made an agreement that <laughs> if she had Daniel, and we're all glad she did, especially Daniel, that my father would take over a larger share of responsibilities. So Daniel was the first daycare kid. And for better or worse, <laughs> poor guy, he had my father's tender mercies. So he'd come home from daycare, not come home, go to my father's plant, and, and then come home. So my mother was able to make the transition because my father supposedly stepped in a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Do you think that he really did step in more? Or for a man of my father's generation, which is how all these sentences have to start. <laughs> yes. Okay. okay, my father would make breakfast on Sunday mornings. My father would pick us up from Hebrew school or whatever. Of course, he was his own boss and my mother wasn't. Uh, so he had freedom of movement during the day. Mm-hmm. Never on time. <laughs> Let's <laughs> put it that way. Plenty of bad memories being left hours and hours places. Mm-hmm. But yes, my father was unconventional in many of the same ways that my mother was. Although mm-hmm. it was she who had to stay home. But that's had to stay home, right? Mm-hmm. It makes it sound like a prison sentence. But she was the one who had to juggle everything and not him. When my mother got a raise at work, my father gave himself a raise. They always made the exact same amount of money. Okay. There was a sense. And he was very proud of her.
2: Some early male allies of SWE extended their support beyond their families. In January 1968, SWE received a funny letter written by Dr. Rolf Salen. It reads, quote, Ladies, I am married to my wife. This creates an interesting situation. In my profession as a physician and also in military service, My wife always had to join the so-called auxiliaries to the various medical societies and officers club. I now hear that you are forming an auxiliary for men. Since my wife is one of your members, I want you to know that I am all for it. I'll be the first to join you when you get it off the ground. He was speaking of the Men's Auxiliary Society of Women Engineers, or MASWE, which was founded in 1967 by Herbert Bud White, the husband of SWI's executive secretary at the time, Winnie White. MASWI provided an avenue for male relatives or boyfriends of SWE members to contribute more substantially to the society and its members. In addition to being good company at SWE events, they also held fundraisers for SWE and drove high school girls to local engineering career nights. Although MASWE was disbanded in 1976, when SWE's bylaws were amended to allow male members, the legacy of those MASWE members continues today with the MASWE scholarship, which was established back in 1971.
1: Of course, men do not need to be family members to be male allies. Supportive professors, coworkers, and bosses can certainly create or contribute to an environment that allows women in engineering to thrive. George Brewster retired as manager of salaried recruiting at Corning Incorporated, and he recognized that while the company needed engineering talent, business practices, and social mores actively pushed women engineers away. He joined SWE in the 1970s and helped to charter the Twin Tiers section in upstate New York. Using the knowledge and connections he gained in SWE, he helped implement programs and policies to improve the environment for women at Corning. In recognition of that work, SWE presented him with the CHIP Memorial Award in 1985. Brewster talked about his work in a 2010 SWE Grassroots Oral History interview with Swee fellow Jane Daniels. The following excerpt has been edited for length.
4: Well, in my company, and I think in every company, you have to have an advocate, okay, for change. And in my company, it happened to be the young woman who introduced me to SWE and so mm-hmm. forth. And again, I, Jackie and Jackie. And the scars on her body are the things that she advocated that weren't part of the uh, the support structure, I think, for either male or female at this point in time. Mm -hmm. But some of the things, uh, you know, like daycare and what do you do about childcare, leave and so forth. And the things that went on that were kind of foreign to a male-dominated population, but are very necessary to have a supportive environment for women. And so I think as in my colleagues in other manufacturing industries too started to realize that they they had to make changes in their workplace environment and policies and procedures that accommodated women, particularly in childbearing years and so forth, and they be part of it. Or you're going to lose a valuable employee that you spent three or four years training and now because she is pregnant and a child, if you don't accommodate that... You know, well, you're gonna lose that person. You lose that investment.
1: Did you have to become a champion for, on behalf of the women with the company, because you understood some of these issues a little bit more?
4: Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, I think it was important that we have we had a professional organization, so I helped establish the uh, Twin Tiers chapter of the mm-hmm. Society of Women Engineers. I remember there when we started that, because I thought I think that was an important support group, so that all of the women engineers within Corning could have some form of a network and a, a way to get some sharing. The other thing that also I think that, talking about the changes that we, we made is we started an internal education program around women in the workplace and not only how you support it but the penalties for what you don't and we used to have a we had a tag team in there that we used to call the offensive and defensive team one was one by the name of marie mckee who was director of women engineering programs at purdue who we hired to help us understand better the women issues in the workplace and then another colleague of her, ours that was a dual career couple and again that was a term that was new in the uh, In the early 80s, a dual career couple, they were both lawyers and Linda Sarton was our what we called offensive person that would uh, hear the laws, bang, 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 here's what happens if you don't, here's the money that costs Corning if you're hit with a suit and so forth. And Linda would go (laughs) the offensive piece and then Marie would come right behind her and tell her how we could accommodate and develop programs so we didn't face the monetary pieces of that. And I think that was another start that, again, helped educate Corning and Corning managers and the male section of Corning Incorporated of the glassworks at that time of how to behave, what the proper behavior was and proper combination levels were.
1: Did you feel you were talking about that offensive and defensive punch that you would use in the training and education of your employees Did you see some real changes come about in the workplace environment after that or in those years?
4: Not radical change, Mm -hmm. but change, slowly but surely. Generationally, you had, you know, without belittling my my white male brother and so forth, but at a certain age, you know, your beliefs are you're rooted in, in bronze, okay, and That generation thought about women and men working together and or traveling together was oh my god that's awful you know we can't do that and I can remember that very true in the eighties in Corning you could hear that from wives and so forth of my colleagues slowly but surely that changed as your as your population of your generation got younger Mm
5: -hmm.
4: your young the young men coming out of engineering school as the Society of Women Engineers had grown and done their work on their campuses and made their awareness in that class. So you, you had a whole different generation of people coming along that were much more accommodating than was the white male who was educated in the 50s and 60s, and early 70s.
2: 1997 CHIP Award recipient Walter McFall spent many decades in technical recruiting at Argonne National Laboratory retiring in the year 2000 as Argonne's principal outreach recruiting coordinator. He was also very active in SWE, serving on the society's industrial roundtable, at, on the executive director selection committee, and 20 years on the editorial board. In his 2010 oral history interview, he talked about becoming a diversity advocate Working with SWE and diversity programs on college campuses to increase the pipeline of underrepresented groups in engineering. The following excerpt has been edited for length.
5: The programs were such that I really got involved on in the campuses. I would spend some of my own time, in fact, uh, going back to campus on the weekend, which I, I was off at the office.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Continued to go to Three national meetings, continued to work with, in fact, my notion was if I'm on any campus and they have a women or a minority engineering program, those were places that I had to go to before I left campus. Mm-hmm. I may have been looking for 10 PhDs, but I would go and, and collaborate with these offices and, you know, do things I can name, uh, some sweet people, Jane Daniels, who ran the program at uh, Purdue University mm-hmm. for a while, was one of those people. And her opposite member for the Minority Engineering Program was the, uh, the, uh, the same. And, and I established these kind of relationships on campuses from Berkeley on the West Coast to MIT on the East Coast mm-hmm. with Georgia Tech and, of course, all the Illinois schools. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the Midwest schools, the Big Ten schools. And so I had those kind of relationships. So a group of uh, women, uh, I think this was the late 80s, became what's now known as WEPAN, mm-hmm. the Women uh, in Engineering Program Advocates Network. And I knew all the people, including the board of directors and so forth, and I simply told my office, we have to be involved. Mm-hmm. And they said, What do you mean we have to be involved? I said, I know everybody in the organization. And it is now a new resource for the organization on campus. Mm-hmm. So I added one more organization to a of organization. I finally looked up and realized that I was a diversity advocate for the <laughs> for the laboratory was not the diversity officer a lot of the things i did the diversity officer got credit for because that person sat in an office Uh and handled some on-site problems and i did all of the recruiting and would identify and seek people and go in and ask them hey promote this person with division x Uh because they're looking for these kinds of people, and here's a woman with all the credentials, and, you know, she needs to mm-hmm. to come in. So I became a women's advocate, quietly, although I, I never realized it until somebody pointed it out to me. But my comment was, gee, I'm just a diversity advocate.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And somewhere along the line, I managed to mentor a few people who... There were a couple that I thought I had lost. It was one woman that I brought into the, from NSBE program that in fact had dropped out of university. And one day she called me up or I ran into her at a conference and she said, thanks to you, I always had it in my head even though I had to drop out for that short period of time that if you had enough belief in me, that I could come back and 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 you know get a graduate degree. She went on and got a PhD and was teaching at the uh, last time I saw her at uh, one of the Florida schools up, mm-hmm. up, up up north. The personal experience that I went through watching another woman engineer being discriminated against simply because she was a woman, and I, I still shudder it. But these are the things that motivated me to be active with women's programs as a minority, of course. Mm -hmm. It's it's natural that I would support uh, programs involving people of color, Native Americans, Hispanics, and and African Americans. But women as as a gender group, no, that sort of surprised even me. But I was very disturbed at the things that I heard the thoughts that people had, and I didn't understand where these extremely bright people had these horrible thoughts, but I guess that's what uh, some basic uh, prejudices are. And I understand that these people were fighting for survival, Mm -hmm. which is why they took these tactics, but that brings out the inner self in a person. And if you act that way under duress, that says something about you. Mm-hmm. Whatever I've done to assist SWE, I've been very proud of. I've enjoyed doing it. I still enjoy.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: I enjoy the uh, camaraderie and so forth. That is my Sweet story.
1: We were very saddened to hear of Walter's passing in late August. He was a true friend of Sweet whose contributions significantly shaped the operations of the society, and he will be greatly missed. On behalf of myself, Troy, and everyone else at SWE, thanks for listening.
0: you enjoyed this episode of Diverse, remember to head to we21.swe.org to learn more about and register for this year's conference.